Hello and welcome to Horror Court Trash Over, the show that discusses all the masterpieces and trash to pieces of genre cinema. My name's Chris. And I'm Gary. And this week we have, I would say, one of the most entertaining films I've watched in a long time. Um, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, the Russ Meyer classic. Yeah, from 1970. From 1970. Um, I, if you're a long-time listener, you you probably realise by now that me and Gary take it in turns choosing films uh, to cover on episodes. And this was my choice. And I kind of knew what I was expecting going into it, to a certain degree. One of John Waters' favourite films. Um, every sort of review or anything that I'd read up on it said it was camp, over the top, melodramatic, all the good stuff that I love. So, and I, I was really wanting to watch the first film, Valley of the Dolls, and we watched that. And I thought this one would make a better podcast episode. I was right. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You agree? Absolutely. Um, yeah, you mentioned John Waters. He actually called it the funniest film ever made. Um, yeah, for me, it's very, very rare that a first-time watch for the podcast, a film we watch for the first time, just for the show, um, becomes one of my favourite films. But this is definitely that case. I didn't know what to expect from it. I expected camp, but that was it. Um, but yeah, this is, this is one of those films where there are certainly some issues i i feel like issues approached with a good heart but executed messily because it's 1970 but it's one of those cases where you can overlook it because of how good the rest of the film is and this is quite a big comparison but sort of like uh psycho and silence of the lambs how there's very obvious issues in those films um, but because they're so fucking good, because they are masterpieces, it's so easy to overlook them. And and for me, this is definitely falls into that category. Yeah, I think it can sometimes be easy to judge films based on 2022. Based on 2022, this is really iffy. But based on it being made in 1970... There's actually some real progressive yeah. parts of it and it surprised me. A really good comparison is Mara Breckenridge because, mm. of course, that was released a week after this. Yeah. They were released in the same year. And the difference between the two films is glaringly obvious. Um, Mara Breckenridge isn't a masterpiece. It's, it's entertaining and, you know, it's fun to watch. But it doesn't deal with certain things the right way. Um, whereas this, I feel like it tried to. I, I really do. I feel like this wasn't meant to... I mean, I feel, I feel like it was meant to offend people but in, in every area. I think it was meant to offend every melodramatic film made within the last 10 years before it was made. Because um, it's a direct parody. But I don't think it's in a bigoted way. I, I don't think. No, no. It... it... Russ Meyer's gay, right? No, Russ Meyer no? was certainly. I don't know why I got gay vibes from him. Not gay. I, 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 I don't know whether it was first Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill, um, or the other one we watched. What was the other one we watched? Um, uh, Super Vixens. Super Vixens. Yeah, I, I kind of even know they're very tits, tits, tits heavy. Um, I, I can't 
I've got gay vibes from them because of how camp they were. Yeah, they are really camp films. And I, I, you know, I don't think his films are in any way sort of homophobic. No. There's iffy moments, but a product of its time. Yeah. Um, but yeah, Russ Meyer's thing is big tits. Al Fanning. Ali Fanning? Al Fanning. It's Al Fanning, isn't it? Yeah, Al Fanning. I should know how to pronounce her name. Um, so she watched this and uh, Valley of the Dolls for inspiration before playing her lead role of Jesse in The Neon Demon. Apparently, um, Nicholas Wine and Refn was heavily influenced by this whilst making The Neon Demon. How? Where? So, because... Um... Because, uh, I, I, I'll say it, I'll say it, and I have the right to say it. Neon Demon... Boring. Yeah. Yawnsville. Yeah. Absolute Yawnsville. But it is camp. It is camp. And I think the female dynamic... Watching this now, it's easy to see what he was going for. I mean, for me, it didn't work. It, it didn't work at all. I'm not a fan of Neon Demon. Um, I, I do think he's a one-hit wonder. But, yeah. I, I can see what he was going for now. Yeah, okay. So He just didn't go as far as he could have gone. He was like, okay, so I'm going to do Beyond... The Valley of the Dolls. But make it serious. Instead of the really funny, exciting, interesting parts, <laughs> I'm going to have people stare at each other. Yeah, <laughs> yeah basically. Okay, so in, instead of instead of singing, cause we're, gonna, we're not going to have a band, we're just going to have people stare. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Lovely. Um, it's also listed, shockingly enough, it's listed amongst the 100 most enjoyably bad movies ever made in the Golden Raspberry Award founder, John Wilson's book, the official Razzie movie guide, and I wholeheartedly disagree. This is not a bad film. This is not a bad film. Um, there's some debate to be had as to whether the first film is bad or good. It's difficult to tell if it's intentionally the way it is. With well, I say the first film is technically not a sequel, but Valley of the Dolls. It's difficult to tell if it's going for bad or going for good because of the way it is. It's entertaining, yeah. but it's so much more messier than this. This is clearly, clearly a satire. It's very much the case of Showgirls, where people mistake it for being a bad film, but it's actually not. Like, a lot of the things you would think would belong to a bad film are actually done by design. Like, like Malignant. Yeah. Yeah, and I suppose if you're fooling people, then you're doing a good job. Exactly. And the person fooling everyone was Russ Meyer, written and directed by him. Uh, director of Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill, Heavenly Bodies, Super Vixens, The Seven Minutes, Beyond, uh, Beneath the Valley of the Ultra Vixens, Up, Even the Handyman, etc, etc. Uh, he was uh, unaware that this film would get an X rating. Fox executives had intended for the film to be a hard R, uh, and Mayer uh, emitted significant amounts of nudity and sex from the final edit. Um, but it's been said that Maya wanted to add much of the footage back into the film following the X-rating to make the most out of it, but there wasn't enough time to do so. Yeah, it's probably a bit milder than his later films, mm -hmm. to a certain degree. Um, racier than Faster Pussycat Kill yeah. Kill. So it's kind of... His, his films, um, from what I can tell kind of do go on a journey and get racier and racier as the times allow racier and racier. Like something like, I think Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, which 
hypocritically had no nudity whatsoever in it. I don't know. Had I don't no think it did, no. actual nudity. But, it, but yet we found... <laughs> a, a suggestiveness. But yet we found it in the adult section in CX. Exactly. <laughs> um, Faster Pussycat Kill Kill, I'll say it now, is one of my favourite films of all time. Yeah. Um, that was milder compared to this. Mm-hmm. But this was milder compared to Ultra Vixens. Yeah. So, yeah, I, I, I don't see now, in 2022, why it would have an X rating. I feel, and correct me if I'm wrong, that it would probably be a, maybe even a 15? I think it would be an 18, um, mainly because... There's a couple of violent shots. The violence and the drugs. And, yeah, uh, lots then again, of drug Who knows anymore? The BBFC is fucking They weird. make it up as they go. Like, you know, Steven Spielberg directed this. It would get a PG, <laughs> you know? In a bizarre series of events, uh, co-written by Roger Ebert. That's right. Known for hating most films we cover on this podcast. Uh, he also wrote up... Um, beneath the valley of the Ultra Vixens and an episode of Welcome to the Basement. Who knew Roger Ebert was writing films? I had, I knew that Roger Ebert had written this film, but until we started the podcast, I didn't realise that I disagreed with Roger Ebert so much, mm. and that Roger Ebert was kind of prudish. Mm. I don't know if that was something he maybe put on. What to he... appease his target audience. Yeah. Well, what's really interesting is how his future TV co-host, Gene Siskel, panned this film when it was first released, giving it a zero-star rating and naming it one of his 20 worst films of 1970. And, of course, five years later, uh, they were partnered for the TV programme Sneak Previews. Yeah. I later think renamed at the movies. Gene Siskel, I feel, didn't get it. Mm. I think if you didn't get it. I also think that maybe Roger Ebert wrote this in a maybe a snarky way. Like, oh, yeah. because it's a parody, yeah. it's a satire. But maybe his kind of satire was more snarky towards the melodrama. Yeah. And then Russ Meyer created, because it's very much a Russ Meyer film. It is. Very much so. He came in and made it into what it is. Mm-hmm. More fun, entertaining. Um, the ending hadn't, wasn't written until filming. Yeah. You know, so... And, and that's one of the most entertaining parts. That, yeah. you know, crazy ending. Um, so maybe it was a snarky comment on melodrama and... The original film, which I think was critically panned. Mm. It re- yeah, it was. Yeah. Um, so it was also originally... Um, so of course, this is intended as a sequel to Valley of the Dolls. Jacqueline Susan wrote a treatment for a sequel uh, and supervised the work of two screenwriters. But when Fox found, out, uh, found that work unsatisfactory, uh, their contract gave them the right to produce a separate version. So Susan was reportedly so offended by the results that she threatened to sue 20th Century Fox. In an attempt to stave stave off the legal issues, Fox inserted the disclaimer that it's not a sequel to Valley of the Dolls. In all of the advertising and in the film itself, Susan and her husband uh, would still sue Fox and negotiate a settlement offer 
after her death in 1974. Yeah, yeah. Um, Jacqueline Suzanne, mm. um, she wrote Valley of the Dolls in 66, I believe. Massive success. Yeah. Hugely successful novel. You know, really the talk of the town. Everyone had a copy. Everyone was talking about it. I think they quickly made a film because the the Valley of the Dolls film was 67, yeah. wasn't it? So I think it was a, a very quick cash grab. Mm-hmm. Um, and we might as well give a little opinion on the first film. I thought the first film had its moments, mm. but overall it was overstuffed. Yeah. And things tended to happen illogically and characters tended to change on the flip of a coin, mm-hmm. um, too much going on. It's a thick book. It's a big book. And even in the two hours, I think it would have made a better miniseries. Yeah. And I actually think part of that and that criticism is it within the satire, within Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Yeah. Because it is a film that goes a mile a minute, mm-hmm. packs so much stuff in, things change on the flip of a coin. Hilarity, yeah, you know, in a funny way. So I think that is, you know, part of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, the idea that you know the first one was panned. What I probably think, Jacqueline Suzanne's sequel was perfectly fine, but it cost too much. Yeah, basically, uh, that's what I think. Mm-hmm. I think it was perfectly fine, but they could make a cheaper cash grab sexploitation mm-hmm. version of Valley of the Dolls yeah. and it made money. Yeah. You know, Beyond the Valley of well, the Dolls made money. That's what I was going to get to. Budget, uh, $900,000. Uh, the box office, nine fucking million dollars. Mm. Um, yeah. For an X-rated film well. well. But, yeah, I mean, 900000 is a modest budget. Um, yeah. The film... You know, it earned ten times that amount in the U.S. market, mm. qualifying it as as a hit for Twentieth Century Fox. Um, but obviously, with uh, with the it got an X rating, and there was negative publicity generated around it by the fact that a major studio allowed a pornographer, uh, Russ Meyer was known as at the time, mm-hmm. labeled King Lear by the mainstream press at the time. To make a Hollywood film um, under the studio. Grace Kelly, who was a member of the board of directors of Fox, was outraged and lobbied to have the studio's contract with Maya terminated. After his next Fox film, The Seven Minutes, in 1971, flopped at the box office, possibly due to its lack of nudity and titillation, the studio terminated its relationship with Maya and he never made another film for a studio. Mm. It is bizarre yeah. that Russ Meyer made a film for 20th Century Fox when you look back at it now. Yeah. Uh, I mean, like I said, Faster Pussycat, Kill Kill, one of my favourites. And mild for, you know, yeah. looking back at it. And that, I feel like, could have been transferred to a studio film. Really. Yeah. You know, just as a little B-movie. Um... But, you know, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, too much for people at the time, Apparently. clearly. Particularly Grace Kelly. Um, 
And I think with the pairing of Myra Breckenridge as well, mm -hmm. which was seen as sleazy and that one really didn't do well at the box no. office. But that one was X-rated, seen as, you know, sleazy. People hated it. Critics hated it. So I think paired them together, mm -hmm. as people did, paired them together. Yeah. That was why there was such a backlash against Beyond yeah. the Valley of the Dot and, you know, 20th Century Fox. Uh, shall we talk about the cast? Yes, in the section called, Hey Babe, I Know You. Dolly Reed. Uh, plays Kelly McNamara. She was in Charlie's Angels, That Tender Touch, Fantasy Island, The Kiss of the Vampire, and a few more things. Okay. I, I have to say that I don't recognise all of the faces. The entire cast are giving me Charlie's Angels, so... Yeah, well, <laughs> it's 1970, it's isn't it? So if, you know, Charlie's Angels might be the 70s version of uh, Murder, She Wrote. Oh, we have one of those in here as well. Oh, uh, not Cynthia Myers though. She was uh, Casey Anderson, and she was only in Molly and Lawless John, The Shoot Horses, Don't They, and The Lost Continent. Oh, so she wasn't in a lot. They shoot horses, don't yeah. they? Yeah, oh, we need to watch that. Marsha McBroom plays uh, Petronola Danforth, otherwise known as Pet. She was in Jesus Christ Superstar, New York Knights, The Bingo Long Traveling All Stars, and Motor Kings, Willie Dynamite. Come back, Charleston Blue, and the legend of uh, the N word Charlie, shall we say? Oh, I see. Interested to see uh, whether that was actually directed by a black woman or not, because it's the seventies. Yeah. Um. But yeah, she's an absolute queen in this. She is. She is definitely. I mean, they all are. This was definitely the uh, toughest film for biggest queen award at the end. Laval Robbie plays Vanessa. She was in Reform Schoolgirls, Freaks of Nature, Murder She Wrote, yes. Legion, A Christmas Family Reunion, which was released last year. She's still acting to this lovely. day. Nice. Uh, Dynasty, Rocky, Blood Beach, Rocky and is in Rocky is in dun, dun, that Rocky, oh. yeah, and many more. Oh, so go on, girl. Still, still got a career. Still working. Good, for, good for her. Edie Williams plays. Ashley St. Ives, icon. Uh, she was in Chained Heat, Nudity Required, The Naked Kiss, Bad Girls from Mars, The American Scream, Man Killers, Hollywood Hot Tubs, The Happy Hooker Goes to Washington, etc. etc. I'm not sure if she was a full on porn star, but she wasn't far from it, which makes her character in this film even better. Yeah. It's actually based on her. <laughs> That's given me softcore yeah. career, definitely. And Phyllis Davis plays Susan Lake. She was in Terminal Island, Guns, Under Siege 2, Dark Territory, Exit to Eden, Fantasy Island, The Love Boat, Live a Little, Love a Lot. No, Live a Little, Love a Little. Oh. The Avis Presley film. I see. Police Woman and many more. Yes, Police Woman. She has a bit of uh, a backstory, actually, with this film. Right. She auditioned thinking it was a sequel to Valley of the Dolls, uh, but she and other actors weren't allowed to see the script. I see. After she was cast, she finally read the script and realised it was nothing like the other film, but it was too late to back out. She said making the film was such a horrible experience and that she came off looking so bad that she wanted to quit acting. Oh no. The producers uh, of the series Love, American Style, released in 1969, uh, which she was working on at the time, took her to dinner and talked her out of quitting. They told her her acting was bad in the film. 
But so was everyone else says it wasn't her fault. Again, it's by design. Who Still... did she play? Susan. Oh, Aunt Susan. Susan. The only thing bad about that performance was that Priscilla Presley wig that yeah. she had on. But she and Russ Meyer didn't like each other um, after she got upset at him filming the scene where she runs naked in the desert. I personally don't remember this scene. What scene? Did... That must have been Kurt. I, I, that must be one must of the ones Kurt. that was Kurt. Um, yeah. Originally she was supposed to be wearing clothes, but when they arrived, they told her to forget her wardrobe and that she'd have to do it naked. She refused. Uh, after arguing for a while, she finally agreed to wear a sheer nightgown with nothing on underneath because she just wanted it all finished and so she could go home. So she had a terrible time. She did she play Susan? Susan. Because there's a sheer nightgown that Casey wears. There is, but yeah, there's a Susan. Maybe they just had a sale on sheer nightgowns. Maybe. Maybe that Maybe. was just a way in nineteen seventy to get a little peak of nudity. I, I recognised her IMDB picture, Phyllis Davis. Did you? Um, but then I turns out we only knew her from uh Terminal Island. Mm. Um, did you get Charles Napier? I didn't get Charles, Charles Napier. Charles Napier, he's in this rather briefly, uh, playing Susan's love interest. Um, he was in a few Russ Meyer films, mm -hmm. but also um, Silence of the Lambs. Okay. He's one of the officers that gets yeah. uh, killed in Silence of the Lambs. Um, someone else is in this oh. as well. Uh, Pam Griff. Technically... It's uh, it's known as her film debut. Mm. She receives an on-screen credit, and a photo of her in the first party scene was prominently featured in a 1970 Playboy layout of the film. Uh, her one-line of dialogue was Kurt, and she only briefly appears in that scene as an extra. And Marcia McBroom was roommates with Greer at the time, and got her a role when she was cast in the film. Mm. Uh, and when she delivered her line, she attempted a British accent and was not given a chance to do another take. <laughs> Why, Pam Grimm? Why would you do that? One of my favourite <laughs> pieces of trivia ever. So weird. Was it in Beyond the Valley of the Dolls? Pam Grimm got cut because she tried a British accent. <laughs> please, please, someone. Is, is this like lost media? You know, please someone find the footage. I, I would like to see that. Release the Pam Grimm cut. <laughs> Grimm cut. Uh, yeah, so... It's time for our feature presentation. I guess I was just too young to really understand A sweet talking orc candy man Beyond the Valley of the Dolls has all the elements Drama, love, mystery, music But the most important element is the guy who put it all together Russ Meyer This is not a sequel. There has never been anything like it. We open with a uh, title card saying, The film you're about to see is not a sequel to Valley of the Dolls. It is wholly original and bears no relationship to real persons, living or dead. It does, like Valley of the Dolls, deal with the oft-times nightmare world of show business, but in a different time and context. That it does. Yeah, so I got in my notes. I said, so what you're saying is, Jacqueline Suzanne wrote a sequel that you didn't like. Probably Dinner. because it would have been more expensive. So you got Russ Meyer to make a cheap, softcore sexploitation film that could cash in on the name you had the rights to. Yeah, that should have been the alternative. Uh... That should have been. Um, but I I think I'm going to take that back a little bit. I think cheap, softcore sexploitation film 
is a bit harsh, actually. Yeah? I think it's a little harsh. Yeah, I think so. There's a, there's a bit more to the film than that. You know, obviously that was my first note at the beginning. Um, but yeah. 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 We get the opening credits over some form of chase, which ends with a man putting a gun in a woman's mouth. Uh, and we get a quick cut to Slay Queens performing for a room of terrible dancers. Yes. Yes. Yeah, so she's being chased around some sort of mansion or something by a man in a Nazi uniform. And then she awakens with a gun in her mouth. Screams and that turn transitions into an absolute banger performed by our three queens, the Kelly Affair, as they're known. Um, yeah, so it's Kelly. Kelly McNamara, Casey Anderson and Petronella Pet Danforth. Yeah, it's given me Josie and the Pussycats. Yeah. It's, uh, the song is called Find It. Mm -hmm. they, they're performing it at the Westmont Senior Prom. Yeah. Uh, the chaperones at the prom are not impressed. No. Because they're idiots. No one can dance. <laughs> the, the prom is stale. It is. <laughs> it, it is. is. They've got a performance of a lifetime right in front of them. And no one could give two shits. Yeah. So, back at the van. They're a little touring bus. Kelly and manager Harris have a little make-out session. They do. They? Um, they decide to make it in the van, mm -hmm. but now I don't really know. I'm assuming this is a pun. We would call this a pun. When Kelly says, no, when I said make it, I mean make it in LA. <laughs> and then we transition to... Well, no, it's it's a lot better than that. Um, I mean, first of all, the, the other girls are like, uh, can you believe those kids making it all the time? And uh, Pet says, don't get too upset, Casey. You know what Kelly's like. <laughs> mm. She's always wanted a bit of dick, R. Kelly. Not not R. Kelly. R. Kelly's in O-U-W. Yeah, no. Yeah, um, our, our Kelly. Yeah, she says, if you want to make love to me, make love to me. And he's like, here? And she's like, no, L.A. Uh. <laughs> and then we get a, a variety of words about what Kelly and Harris think about L.A. Along with a montage of various things in L.A., Followed by the band and Harris going on their road trip while singing Come With The Gentle People. Um, and we find out they're going there to find Kelly's estranged aunt, Susan Lake, a heiress to the family fortune. Yeah, so Susan is, she's some kind of photographer, isn't she? Mm -hmm. Or advertisement woman. But she's been left money by her aunt, which was Kelly's mother's aunt as well. But Kelly's mum fucked off, so they weren't very close. But Kelly is now going to Susan to get her rightful claim yeah. to the, you know, fortune. Yeah. Um, which Susan agrees with, like, mm -hmm. completely. Um, her name is Susan, isn't it? It is Susan. Every so often I've written Sarah. I keep doing this. It's very unprofessional. I do apologise. Um, Susan invites Kelly and the rest of Kelly affair... The Kelly Affair. It's very confusing. Is it The Kelly Affair? Kelly's Affair? It should be Kelly's it, Affair. It is The, the Kelly the Affair. The Kelly Affair. It, luckily it changes soon. They're invited to Ronnie Zeman Barzell's big party. Did you get the scene before that where they're, uh, where she meets Susan for the first time at the film set? 
uh, and there's a camp guy in a cage who is like, Susan, Susan, I am simply in a rage. <laughs> oh, yeah. Is he? I, I forgot to check this. Was he not the guy who um, was in the Gay Deceivers? He might have been. Was, I think she's right. Mm, it could have been him. Not not the, the you know, I know a bitch when I see one, mm -hmm. but the, the boyfriend of I know a bitch when I see one. I think Maybe. it was him. You don't see him again, actually, in no. this film. What a waste of talent. Waste of talent. Yeah, we're also introduced to Porter Hall, um, the sleazy financial advisor for Susan, who uh, discredits Kelly as a hippie to dissuade uh, Susan from dividing the fortune that he wants for himself. Yeah, I'm not really sure what his plan was in this film. He like, just wanted the money. He wanted a cut of it. Does he get a cut of it? Was he going to steal from Susan? Mm -hmm. I don't really get it. Well, you, this this is a bizarre series of events. A bizarre series of events. So this is our first party scene in a film with lots of party <laughs> scenes. We're not including the prom because it was boring. There's lots of wacky characters. Um, it plays a little like uh, a skit. Like, um, is it Martin and Rowan's laughing? It's like Lady it, Street it, Fighter, the party scene in that. Yeah, yeah. But it cuts to different characters, wacky characters, party goers within the scene. So, um, a few highlights are <laughs> the, the hippie lady who tells her fella, whoever it was, um, that he's a moon child and he says... And you're a bitch. Is that no reason? Is that Rita from Corrie if Rita was cast by John Waters? Yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah. No, no, no. Rita from Corrie. Are you talking about the Red, the red, red Wig and No Teeth? Yeah, 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 yeah. So the older lady, Red Wig and No Teeth, says it wasn't long, but it was four inches thick. <laughs> yes. <laughs> a man comes up to Susan. I don't know who it is, and is introduced to Kelly. And he says, every inch as ugly as you are, Susan, must run in the family. <laughs> oh, it's Z-Man. <laughs> so he's, so Z-Man is based on Phil Spector. Yeah. Um, which is insane considering the ending of the film. Yeah. And they, they were told they got it spot on as well. They were by, told they uh, got it spot associates. on. He was also, Z-Man was also the inspiration uh, for Frank and Fetter in Rocky Horror Picture Show. Oh. Oh, okay. Yes. Oh, my God. That definitely makes, makes sense. Definitely yeah. makes sense. Yeah. Because um, Z-Man is pretentious as fuck. Yeah. I mean, the whole idea is that he's just, he don't talk shite. Mm -hmm. You know, he talks like he thinks he's in a Shakespeare play. He talks like he thinks he's, he just knows he's the most intelligent man in the room when he's not. So that that's the whole mm. idea. And Frankenfurt is very much like that as well. Yeah. Um Z Man takes Kelly to see his bedrooms straight away. I've got some more dialogue highlights. Oh have you? Okay, um, good. Got, she went after me like a barracuda <laughs> to which another man says they're both gay. Another man says, I warned you, you old fruit. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah. Um <laughs> ever been whipped <laughs> ever been whipped with a wand until the blood came? <laughs> I was anxious to get out of bed. I stepped on her face. <laughs> yeah. Just talking shit, basically. Uh, Z-Man takes Kelly to see his bedrooms, uh, where a couple of 
So first of all, a couple are shagging on a large heart-shaped bed. Um, then it looks like the same couple are getting <sighs> it off in the hot tub. And then there's a gay couple who are trying to get it on, but I think they're having erectile issues. Um, and it was Kelly and Z-Man interrupts them, and they're like, what did they say? Like, well, nothing was happening here anyway, and goes <laughs> and just leaves. Um, Harris catches the eye of pornographic actress Ashley St. Ives. <laughs> Who is giving me Raquel Welsh. Yeah. Stunning. Absolutely stunning. Um, he initially shames her for her pornographic career, but soon comes around when the toes get involved. Yeah. Yeah, he suggests that she starts sucking on his toes, and she says, you're a groovy boy. I'd like to strap you on sometime. <laughs> she says... Oh, was it something like, oh, you must be brave being into toes wearing sandals or something <laughs> like that? We're introduced to uh, Emerson Fawn, law student by day and waiter by night, uh, who has a flirting session with Pet in the kitchen. Yeah. Yeah, so there's a, a little start of a romance there. Um, Casey isn't really interested in getting the party started. No. Uh, especially after... Um, Aunt Susan, I've got her down as Sarah. It's embarrassing. Uh, Susan's financial advisor, Porter, mentions Casey's father as a senator. Casey does catch the eye of a female guest, Roxanne, who invites her to her studio the next day. Um, Harris is fuming, absolutely fuming, when Kelly refers to him as her manager yeah. when she introduces him to Z-Man. Um, yeah. They they perform sweet talking Candyman. They do, they do. After uh, the Rita, not, not the Christina Aguilera song. After Rita from Coronation Street tells the guy she's with that she'd like to strap him on sometime. Yeah, what's with strapping people on sometimes? <laughs> They're so well received that Z Man uh, becomes their new manager, changing their name to the Carry Nations, and starting a long simmering feud with Harris. Yes. Um. Did you catch the performance how Kelly perfectly belted out vocals with no effort in her face whatsoever? Yeah. <laughs> like proper belting out these notes, but looking like she's just ordering pizza. Yeah. Yeah. I, I love it when films do that. It always makes me laugh. The soundtrack is absolutely banging, by the way. So just, just a reminder. good. Need it on vinyl. It is on Spotify. So good. Um, so the newly named the Carrie Nations. Yeah. Is it Carrie Nations? The Nation? Carrie Nations. You thought this was going to be less confusing than the last exactly. name. Exactly. The Carrie Nations. The Carrie Nations. Yeah. So it sounds a bit like the Coronations. Yeah, because Rita's in the film. Oh, of course. Um, they perform some kind of New Seekers style hippie ballad called Someone. Well, I don't think it's called. It's called In the Long Run. In the Long Run. But it in. <laughs> Dolph Long Run. Um, but it includes lyrics, someone to lean on, come a rainy day. So I thought it was called, come a rainy day. It's not. No. It? No, it's not. Uh, yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a montage of them performing it. Uh, whilst Harris <laughs> is edited onto the left side of the screen, uh, bopping his head along. And Z-Man is edited onto the right-hand side, just pouting. <laughs> doing nothing else. 
It's camp. It's camp. Yeah. Uh, Kelly drifts away from Harris, who now feels like more of a groupie, and she dates Lance Rock, a high-priced gigolo who has his own designs on her inheritance. On, on her inheritance. Yeah, we get a little gratuitous nudity in the dressing room because I forgot it was a Russ Meyer film, so we had to have a little bit, a <laughs> little bit of gratuitous nudity. Um, yeah, Kelly leaves Harris behind on the way to the top, but that doesn't that doesn't Lance, mean much for him. Uh, no, well, Lance is so Lance is a high class gigolo. Yeah. Isn't he? Yeah. Um, and when we first kind of meet him properly, he's with Miriam, who mm-hmm. is giving me Sylvia Miles. Yeah. Um, so I don't know if this is a direct reference because the times are quite close, but Midnight Cowboy mm-hmm. was released in 1969, which was about a male gigolo. Okay. Um, actually, doesn't gigolo just mean male anyway? Anyway. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> a gigolo... And uh, starring Sylvia Miles. Mm-hmm. So I think this is a reference. It's yeah. definitely giving Midnight Cowboy energy, mm-hmm. which I found funny. Um, yeah, Harris doesn't uh, doesn't have much time to grieve over losing Kelly because he's seduced by Ashley St. Ives in her car. She constantly reminds him that they're in a Rolls Royce uh, and their backseat sex scene is intertwined with uh, Kelly and Lance's sex scene. Is it Rolls Royce or a Bentley? Or does she, roll, she, not, said, Chris, Bentley. she says Rolls fucking a thousand times in that car. I thought it was a Bentley. No, it was like, have you ever done it in a Rolls? Have you done it in a Rolls? Oh, we're doing it in a Rolls. We're doing it in a Rolls. Oh, have you done it in a Rolls? You're losing your Rolls virginity, like, constantly. <laughs> um, Lance admits that he has a thing for Aunt Susan. <laughs> rich older lady. Come on. Um, definitely as a type. Susan looks the same age as everyone else in this it's film. It's true. I really it is true. <laughs> found it difficult to believe she was older. It is true. One bad wig does not <laughs> an old lady make. Um, he warns Kelly that Porter is after uh, her money. Um, but I also think Lance is after her money yeah. as well. Well, he tells her at first that he's not. Um, but then when she says she's, uh, she's telling Aunt Susan to, uh, screw the money. He's like, oh no, no, no. That's a terrible decision. You don't want to do that. Yes. The next day at Susan's office, Porter has a go at Susan and Kelly again. Yeah. Um, Kelly. Kelly says, "I'm a capitalist. Uh, I'm a capitalist, baby. I work for my living, not suck off someone else." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, Pet and Emerson have a study session during a picnic date. Yeah. That leads very quickly to a literal roll in the hay. Yeah. Um, this may be where it came from. <laughs> and I, I just I just thought it was a a really great representation of an African American couple. Really. Yeah. From nineteen seventy and you know just to have him being a law student, then working together as law student, it's not based on stereotypes, no. it's not based on the kind of stereotypes you got in films around that time and continued, you know, in, in black exploitation mm-hmm. cinema. Um, it was just nice to see this couple. It was. It gets melodramatic. Like oh, so every even this sequence is melodramatic. Yeah, but like every pairing and every sort of character in this film mm-hmm. and pairing in this film, it goes pear shaped and you know but I just thought it was a really great representation yeah. for nineteen seventy. Obviously, we'd want a whole lot fucking more now. But for yeah. 1970, I just thought it was refreshing. 
Because shit like that makes me nervous. Mm -hmm. You know, it does. If I don't know what to expect, you know, from a film, and knowing Russ Meyer and and maybe his sense of humor that comes across in his films, mm -hmm. it could have been really iffy. Yeah, and it wasn't. You know, really likable characters. A, I say a believable relationship. I mean, none of the relationships in this film are believable. Nah. People have only known each other for like two weeks. And declaring love, um, but yeah, I just I thought it was I thought it was good, yeah, good representation, yeah, absolutely. Um, Porter calls Kelly and suggests that they have a drink together, and Lance thinks she should go ahead of it because this is her chance to really shaft him. To which uh, she says, "Why do I do everything you say? You made me into a whore." And he says, "And I dig it, you little freak." <laughs> So she does the meet up with Porter in does. a bar. She puts jazz on the jukebox <laughs> and then starts dancing by herself. <laughs> very, very 60s. This is feels like a direct parody of the scene in Valley of the Dolls where uh, the uh, character puts her own song on the jukebox. So the Patty Duke character. Yeah, and she starts... Is it uh, ne ne Nelly or something? Yeah, yeah. and then starts uh, constantly singing at the bar. She does, yeah. Um... Yeah, this feels like a direct parry on that because she's not listening to anything he's saying. She's just constantly dancing around. But also that very... And the Simpsons constantly uh, mimic it. That very 60s close-up of the boobs and the backside yeah. as they're doing yeah. the shimmy. Uh-huh. Um, he's trying to talk to her about finances. She pushes him when she realises uh, he's trying to make deals behind Susan's back. Uh, but they eventually come to a deal, don't they? Well, yeah. Kelly suggests um that they go back to hers as an apology mm -hmm. she gives him some pot i'm assuming some yeah. mar marijuana and lures him into bed while well, she puts on sweet talking candy man by the carry yeah, nations course. puts on her own song shag, <laughs> shag into your own song that's queen behavior there um but i'm a little confused as to what's being suggested here but i believe the idea is that he's a bit of a Quick draw. The idea is that he's going to give her um, a share of the money for her to back off. but Not as much as she wanted, but... But her hand goes somewhere. Oh, yeah. Yeah, for not for very long. And then not for very long. So I think the idea... And she says she won't tell Susan if Porter doesn't tell mm -hmm. Susan about, you know, what's happened. Um, another party at Z-Man's. Isn't that next? Yeah, we, we get another in the long run montage again. A very quick one. There's some of various sex scenes thrown in. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, Baxter Wolf, Susan's ex-fiance, shows up. Charles Napier. Yeah, and tells Susan uh, he's still in love with her and that he wants her back and they have a kiss. Yeah. He, he brings just a, out of nowhere. He brings a woman to the party. Yeah. Susan happens to be there and he just like... He's, I, this is definitely a parody <laughs> of the original. Yeah. Definitely. Because just out of nowhere, he comes along and says... I was wrong. I am ready for marriage. Let's get married. <laughs> Definitely a parody of Valley of the Dolls. Uh, and then Kiss. Um, Harris and Ashley start to get it on on the beach. Yeah. But Harris would like to make love in a bed for once. Um, hilarious exchange here. Ashley St. Ives cements her status as a queen. Um, because... He's not liking it on the beach. And she says, well, what does sex amount to without guilt? That's what Sigmund Freud says. 
Take away the guilt and who'd want to get laid. <laughs> yeah. Uh, she is sick of him wanting vanilla sex and she delivers that line of dialogue in, in the most amazing way. Uh, but she's also annoyed that she can't have sex with him because of his increasing drug and alcohol intake. So she tells him he couldn't be in one of her films unless he plays a hairdresser <laughs> and then suggests that he finds himself a nice tender boy and struts off yeah. before flirting with a random guy walking down to the beach on her way back. She says, Harris, you're drunk and stoned. And the worst of it is, you're a lousy lay. <laughs> Insinuates that he may be homosexual. He's absolutely fuming at this. <laughs> Goes inside, tries it on with Kelly, gets into a fight with Lance. Yeah, a very camp very fight. Camp. The starts of a slap exchange. Yeah, it's, it's almost Batman, 1960s <laughs> Batman level. Um, he comes out on the losing end. Does. But Kelly is fuming with Lance. Yeah. And tells Lance to fuck off. She does. Amongst all of this, we're also introduced to Randy Black, a heavyweight, champ a heavyweight champion and a friend of Lance's, who shows up and takes a liking to Pet, who tells him she already has a boyfriend, uh, but they have a dance together. They do have a dance together. Um, Kelly tells Porter to fuck off, too. Yeah, she's well, I mean, first of all, did you get what she said to Lance? No. Big lover, big man, Dundee Lance. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I probably didn't get, I didn't get that down because I don't know what Dundee means. Made no means. sense. What does Dundee mean? I have no idea. But then Porter's like, uh, Miss McNamara, remember. And she's like, Mr. Hall, take your $50,000, lover. And then slaps him and storms out as Susan very arrives. Very traumatic. Very over the top. Uh, very cat. The eyes are popping. The eyes are popping. Uh, yeah, so Susan finds out and fires Porter. Um, Z-Man reads Lance to filth. Uh, everyone's reading Lance to filth. But Z-Man really lets him have it. Yeah. Um, he reads him to filth over his hustler ways. He says, uh, do you run an audit on their books first? <laughs> or, or do you get with them on faith? <laughs> Then they, then he seemingly suggests that they get together, uh -huh. which results in Lance punching Z-Man. Yeah. Um, Pet feels bad for Kelly, and uh, and Randy gives her a motivational speech about life to comfort her. Yeah. Oh, God, yeah, this was really, a bit preachy, wasn't it? Like, yeah. Harris looks I, for... I think that was, I think that was a parody of... Uh, if I read somewhere, I think... He was based off Muhammad Ali, mm. and I think Muhammad Ali was obviously very talkative. Yeah, and I think this was kind of a parody of Muhammad Ali, and mm -hmm. you know how he he talked a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I mean he said good stuff, but you know he did yeah. talk a lot. Harris looks for comfort from Casey because Ashley accused him of being a homosexual and a lousy lay. This is definitely a hundred percent. This is a parody on the first film, and the weird little bits of uh, homophobia from some characters that we got in there, like uh, the male main, the main male character in in the original, who was really homophobic. What was his name? But was massively camp himself. Oh, I can't remember. But yeah, this in is definitely original. this is yeah. And the one thing about the original that I must say is every man looked exactly the same. Every single man looked like they were trying to be Rock Hudson. Yeah. This is definitely a play on that, though. Uh, Casey gives him some pills and they have a one-night stand. 
uh, and Harris gets her pregnant. But we don't find it out till a little later on in an amazing scene. Um, Pet sleeps with Randy. Emerson comes home early and catches them in bed together. Uh, to which Pet doesn't even try and defend what's happening. She just keeps saying, I thought you were studying for the day. I <laughs> thought you were studying. And Randy says, I guess he didn't take it too well. Yeah. <laughs> so she throws him out. Um, in a bizarre series of events, Randy attempts to leave, but Emerson stands in his way. So Randy runs him over and he's thrown into a flower bed where he has a very melodramatic scene whilst Pet holds him. It looks like this entire sequence is like Douglas Sirk on speed. It really is. This is it, like the, the house where they're at yeah. and the flower bed out front and everything. Really, it is like something out of a Douglas Sirk film. Absolutely. It's hilarious. Absolutely. It's, it's so melodramatic. And... Um... Pet declares her love for Emerson after only knowing each other two weeks. Because in the previous scene, Casey and Harris were, you know, saying about how they're fed up of two weeks yeah. of being in LA and all the booze and drugs and shit. So after two weeks, she declares her love for Emerson <laughs> because he's uh, just been run over by a car. Um, he d he Does he appear injured in any scene after this? He leans over slightly in his next scene. Because yeah. I thought he was dead. Yeah. I, I thought he was dead. Um, but the next thing you see him, he's like leaning over slightly, but then quickly gets over it. Um, Casey is fuming. <laughs> I've said fuming a lot. Casey is fuming when she realises she slept with Harris and blames him for taking advantage of her while she was passed out. Which is really fucking iffy. Yeah. Because, spoiler alert, Harris is not punished for this. No, no, he's not, no. By the end of the film, he's not punished for this. No. So it's insinuating that he raped her. Mm. Well, well, it's not insinuating it, it says it. Yeah. Roxanne says it later on, mm -hmm. that he raped her whilst she was asleep, which is really, really iffy. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. Not, 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 not a good part of the film. Not cool. No. We get a montage of the Carry Nations performing Look On Up at the bottom, whilst Z-Man has a happy dance on the left-hand side of the screen, and Harris looks sad on the right. Uh, they, the, yeah. Well, no, this time <laughs> they swap the now. other way around. Yeah. Uh, the Carry Nations go on a talk show and perform Find It as a thank you to Harris for getting them to where they are. Did you notice the lyrics on Look On Up at the bottom? No. It's one long reading session. It's so it's, it's essentially saying you got nothing, your pockets are empty, you're looking up from the bottom, <laughs> looking down on love. <laughs> Harris smashes the shop window with the Carrie Nation's album displayed, and then Carrie Nation perform Find It as a dedication to Harris on TV. Um, so camp, <laughs> because the, the camera pans up. And we see him in the rafters, like the fucking <laughs> Phantom of the Opera, watching them. He jumps down from the rafters onto the stage in an attempt to kill himself. We then cut to Dr. Scholl. The, which... the best... Was this before or after Network? This was before Network. Oh, okay. Because I thought it may have been a play on Network. The way... <laughs> I thought it was a, a, a kind of... A bit of a commentary on news, well, cameras 
being present oh, for new course, shows and talk shows. Yeah. Um, the cam- no, keep the camera keep, on. keep it rolling, keep it rolling, keep, keep it rolling. rolling. Like getting right up in his face and <laughs> yeah. just jump from the top. Um, Dr. Scholl, which I, I <laughs> hope is a joke. <laughs> I don't know when Dr. Scholl, the, like, the foot doctor was established, but Dr. Scholl reveals that Harris survived, but he's a paraplegic with a very slim chance of walking again. <laughs> Um, he emphasizes how slim this chance very is. Very slim. He goes on about <laughs> you know spinal columns and such. It's very slim chance he'll walk again. Casey reveals her pregnancy <laughs> to the group. Uh, Casey then reveals her pregnancy to Roxanne, who talks her into getting an abortion from a very grumpy nurse. Like this nurse is so rude. <laughs> um, and, and let's not forget uh, Doctor Downs as well. Doctor Downs. It's a very sketchy abortion clinic. Yes. Uh... She enters the room for the abortion and lets out an incredible scream. Um, then we see an egg in I a frying was... pan. We do see an egg in a frying pan, which I think is a joke. Um, no, it's no, it's not an egg. It's a, a pancake. Is it? She's no. making pancakes, which is not, I'm assuming, not a joke then. Um, but yeah, it's. I'm. I'm glad that it didn't overdo the abortion scene no it didn't take it too far it, i mean it you know on, on a serious note it highlighted how sketchy abortion clinics probably were at oh, that absolutely. time absolutely um you know although it's a comedic scene it, it's still very much grounded in reality yeah um, for that but also it didn't even take a second to uh to frown upon abortions. It was an actual realistic option and she did it. Yeah. Yeah, she she didn't necessarily want to do it, but for what she perceived to be the greater good, mm. she did have the abortion. Yeah. It, From a situation that, you know, proves why abortions should be available and why all this shit going on in America currently is bullshit. Considering how she got yeah. pregnant. I'm not massively familiar with the American policy. I don't know if this was... I'm assuming this was after Roe versus Wade. Or... or before, I'm not sure. But it's around the time yeah. where that conversation was mm-hmm. happening. Yeah. Um, I think I think it's interesting. Um, because it's part of... The, for the original film, mm-hmm. Valley of the Dolls, that is kind of not dealt with either. It's not massively dealt with in this. Mm. Um... But this is kind of one of those, because it's a parody, mm. you kind of, they're throwing everything in there because melodramas throw everything in there. You know, look at a John Waters film. Yeah, yeah. It throws everything in there. So I can't sit here and say, well, it doesn't deal with it properly when that wasn't maybe not mm. the intent or the yeah. purpose. I think just including this alone says enough. Yeah, you know the fact that literally not even after this, even after this, no one is is looking at it like a bad thing that she got an no, abortion. No, no one. No, it's never mentioned. But that, exactly. After. But that's how it should be. You know, it should be normalized. It should be a very normal thing. Yeah. You know that that option would be available, and and I really for a film in nineteen seventy to deal with it that way. I, I think that is really progressive. And I, I feel I feel like it is dealt with in a very John Waters kind of way. I feel like if John Waters um, was to include an abortion in his film, it would be exactly like this. Yeah, she's she's a character that's not shamed 
for no. it. No. It's not the ideal situation. My my issue is with, you know, how the character of Harris is treated. Yeah, that that and is I an don't, issue. Yeah. And I think I think it's in many ways accurate to the time and yeah, to yeah, now yeah. that Harris gets away with it scot free. Yeah. But I don't think that was the intention. Mm. Because maybe it would have made it a little clearer. Yeah. If the intention had been to show that all of it was put on Casey in the end, mm. um, then I think it probably should have or could have emphasised that more mm-hmm. to make it clearer that we're seeing Harris get away scot-free yeah. with his actions, which doesn't... I don't think that was the intention. No. Even though that was probably very accurate to the time... Mm. I think it could have said something about that and about yeah. how wrong that was. Uh, Pet and Emerson are celebrating a week of now being engaged. Yeah, they are. Randy uh, dramatically shows up and tries to ruin things. He and Emerson have uh, a, a camp fight and uh, the delivery boy shows up with roses. Randy throws them onto Emerson and tells them he's thrown in the towel and just leaves. <laughs> Yeah, well, he throws in the towel because Pet threatens him with a knife. She does, yeah. So she makes her choice. Mm-hmm. What Randy's fuming about is that he's just spent 30 days in prison. <laughs> so, obviously, we're 30 days after him getting <laughs> run over. So, and then a week... A week... Um, I'm trying to do the math in my... Uh, math? I'm trying to do the mathematics in my head. So they knew each other two weeks before Emerson got run over. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So Emerson got run over 30 days after that. Yeah. So let's call that, what, four four weeks? Uh-huh. Four weeks. So they've known each other six weeks, got engaged after five weeks. Mm-hmm. That's okay. Yeah. I mean, I mean that's in keeping it's with definitely very any Alfred Hitchcock film. Yeah. Casey uh, and Roxanne spark up a romantic relationship uh, whilst Harris is now in a wheelchair and Kelly's looking after him. Yeah, so Kelly feels very guilty, um, has absolutely no reason to feel guilty whatsoever. Um, Lance leaves the bed of an elderly woman to join Z-Man, Roxanne and Casey at a dinner party at Z-Man's house. Yes. Uh, Z-Man is dressed as Superwoman, but, <laughs> but not dressed as Superwoman. No, because um, it's a costume party and refuses to be referred to as anything but Superwoman. <laughs> uh, Casey and Roxanne are dressed up, but I'm not sure. Not, not what sure. As, just... Not what as. And Lance is in a... His Jungle Boy. His Jungle Boy he's, outfit. He's in nothing but leopard print speedo. Because I'm assuming they weren't allowed to say Tarzan, but it's a, le- a leopard print... Um, <laughs> Speedo, yeah. I was, I think, Speedo or Y-Friends? I suppose the same thing, same isn't thing, it, really? Um, Casey and Roxanne get it on. Yeah, after some sort of spell, some sort of spell is cast, um, and then they all have sex. Yeah, I'm not really sure <laughs> what spell was cast. It was giving me a genre line for a bit. Um, the cinematography in the sequence is fantastic. Is it actually really good? Uh, Z-Man's advances towards Lance are thwarted, and Z-Man is fuming. Yeah. Z-Man says, you will drink the black sperm of my vengeance. 
we get some genuine romance uh, between Casey and Roxanne, which I thought was really nice. Uh, they have sex again um, to the Beyond the Valley of the Dolls theme song. So this, uh, there was a lesbian relationship supposedly happening in uh, the original novel, mm. but it wasn't put into the 60s one because of uh, the 60s. The film, yeah. Um, but it's dealt with here brilliantly. Like, it really is so progressive. Like, yeah, it's not, it doesn't feel, it actually feels like a romantic sex scene. It doesn't feel like it's there for titillation. Like, no. it's, it's like a normal romance. I mean, obviously, you, you know, it, it, you would expect with a Russ Meyer film, you'd expect this to have come across just there for, um, you know, a bit of eye candy for the straight white male. Yeah, which, like, which I'm not like most, necessarily against. You know, like most... Uh, lesbian representation would be in the 70s yeah but this is different for me this this didn't feel like that this didn't feel like exploitation it felt like a genuine relationship yeah with two likable characters yeah absolutely and i think something that i in particular may be guilty of is kind of making it sound like if it's not fantastic representation then it's a shit film it's not necessarily the case. I enjoy, you know, the exploitation part of Russ Meyer's films. I, mm. I enjoy that part. Yeah. There, there's a silliness to it. There's a campness to it. As long as the women are willing participants, mm. it's fun, you know, and I enjoy that. But seeing something like this elevates yeah. a film, yeah. it makes it into something different. Mm -hmm. And I'm more invested and... You know, and I and I enjoy both. There's there's a time and place for everything in cinema, to a certain degree. Yeah. Um, but there's a time and place for everything, and I enjoy it all. You know. But having a relationship like this in a film set in 1970, yes, there's you know there's no huge coming out scene. It's not. But that's even better. But it's not it necessary. Didn't need to be. Yeah. You know, it's it just, just happens. Like, this is a relationship yeah. on screen. It doesn't feel gratuitous. No. Despite the X rating of the film, it doesn't feel gratuitous. Mm. You know, it's just two, you know, characters who, who love each other. You can bet, whether it be 1970, that, that is a big part of why it got an X rating. Potentially. Potentially. Yeah. But also probably a big selling point, you know. Yeah. I, I haven't seen a trailer. I should probably see. We did. We watched watch... a bunch of trailers yesterday. Oh, did we? Yeah. Did I have a big emphasis it, on the sex. sex? Not so much lesbian sex. No, yeah. just sex in general. Uh, yeah, so Lance isn't having any of, uh, of Z-Man's advances. And uh, Z-Man ties him up whilst providing a big monologue to him. Um... He thinks he's in a Shakespeare play. I have absolutely <laughs> no idea what he's talking about. I'm assuming that's the intent. In a bizarre series of events, he... A really fucking bizarre series, series of events. <laughs> he reveals to Lance um, that he has breasts and is a female in drag. Uh, and Lance calls him ugly. He's, he's, a, he's a drag king. Yeah, seemingly. This, this is nine, very 1970. Very 1970. Um, but Z-Man reveals... Um, breasts. Lance says, you've been an ugly broad all along. Z-Man is fuming <laughs> yep. at this and cuts off Lance's head as the 20th Century Fox fanfare <laughs> plays. Yeah, so um, that was put in there to avoid an X rating, funny enough. 
they uh, they thought putting in the 20th Century Fox fanfare uh, would lower the gruesomeness by presenting it as satire, but it, it didn't make a single bit of difference. No, no, it didn't. The, the, it shocked me, actually. Yeah. <laughs> the gory climax as a whole was not in the original treatment, um, and Ebert and Maya came up with the idea very late in pre-production. It was based on the August 1969 Charles Manson family murders, which occurred whilst Ebert was finishing the screenplay. And, of course, you know, as you said earlier, Phil Spector, the inspiration for Z-Man, would later be convicted of the murder of actress Lena Clarkson, which means that Ebert and Mayo captured him even more accurately than they could have imagined. Yeah, yeah. Is, it really is crazy. It, it is. It is. Um, adding that bit at the end, after the Manson murders, that's, that's a dick move. Really, especially considering Sharon Tate was in the original Valley of the Dolls movie. Yeah, yeah. That is a dick that's, move. Yeah, that's, that's questionable. It's not explicitly, it's not like... It's not clear that that's it's where it's It's not clear. Or. It's not a, I don't think it's really a satire of that necessarily. Mm. Um, but to, to sort of tell everyone that that was... It's yeah. a dick move, I think. Um, yeah, but that accuracy with Phil Spector. Uh-huh. Um, yeah. This is definitely what Quentin Tarantino was trying to do with the ending of Once Upon a Time in Hollywood in the way that the whole film was so completely different that you just get this big burst of violence at the end. I feel like Tarantino is directly trying to do Beyond the Valley of the Dolls. Yeah. Especially means, a lot of films. Especially means Valley of the Dolls is in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood. Yeah, no, that's true. Um, I, I, I think this is, you know, that never-ending list of Quentin Tarantino's favourite films. Yeah. I think this is featured on it at some point, or he's he's played it. Is it is it the New Beverly, the the cinema that he did? Or, yeah, or yeah, yeah, yeah. This is this is on there. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, but yeah, he. I mean, regardless of what it's based on, this is a ridiculously entertaining series of events. It, it is. It he, is. He then he so he decapitates Lance with a sword. He then stabs his Nazi servant Otto to death. Yeah, so he's a German barman called Otto, who for some reason happens to be dressed as a Nazi. Yeah. Uh, yeah, stabs him to death. And then we kind of realise that the beginning of the film, and I don't know why they did this, I don't know what it means. The beginning of the film, where the Nazi is chasing um, a woman around a mansion, mm -hmm. is this. Yeah. But it's not what we assumed it was at the beginning. Yeah. Um, because Casey's witnessed the decapitation, mm -hmm. ran off. Otto is has also witnessed the decapitation, is running away. Yeah. And it's Z-Man that is, you know, chasing both of them, really. Yeah, so... And kills Otto on the on the beach. Yeah, so then he puts the gun in Roxanne's mouth. We were like, she's the woman from the start. Yeah. And uh, shoots her. And she's it'd be really gory as well. Yeah. Like, the blood shoots out of her nose mm -hmm. and her mouth. Yeah. Um, so he shot after that, he, um, he does kill Casey as well, shooting her. Um, but bef shortly before that, she calls, uh, she calls Kelly and, uh, Kelly, Harris, Pet and Emerson go to Z-Man's house to subdue him. Um, their exit from the house is hilarious. Emerson's like, Casey needs help. Let's go. And... It genuinely looks like something out of fucking Scooby-Doo, like does. the way they leave that house. It's giving Scooby-Doo. Um, Pet is shot during the big camp struggle. 
But just in the shoulder. Just in the shoulder. Um, which ends in Z-Man's death. Uh... <laughs> Harris is knocked <laughs> to the ground out of his wheelchair. Yeah. And he starts... To, going back to the toes. He starts to feel his toes moving. <laughs> and suddenly he can walk again. My toes! I can feel my legs! Um, so, yeah, he gets a happy ending with Kelly. Not, not, well, not like the well, massage. I mean, <laughs> well, I was, well, maybe at someone. some point. But, and um, we get the voiceover tying up the themes of the film. And I do actually have it here. Uh, am I okay to quickly go through yeah. that? Uh, because I think it's very interesting in terms of the intent of the film. So it's an over voice, over voice, voice, voice over. over narration from Russ. Maya himself and uh, he says the act of death has caused another life to be reborn so Casey dying Kate yeah that's iffy that's really iffy Casey dying has allowed Harris to have a new lease on life and get his um ability to walk back mm. uh, together we share the wonder of human existence and let there be no doubt that all of us are brothers. There can be no beginning or ending that does not in some way touch another. For our actions affect the lives and destinies of the many. Um, which I think is interesting. Mm -hmm. I think it's very melodramatic. I think that's the idea. Is that he's been very over the top. Yeah. With the themes of the film. Um, you know, reaching out. Touching me. Touching you. Sweet Caroline. Please stop. <laughs> He goes on to say, Z-Man, he forgot that life has many levels, and by choosing to live on only one, lost sight of reality. <laughs> Ashley, <laughs> men were toys for her amusement. Her total disregard for their feelings made love a stranger to her. Lance Rock, he never gave of himself. Those who only take must be prepared to pay the highest price of all. <laughs> Porter Hall used his profession to mask selfish interests, to betray the trust, uh, to betray the trust that should have been sacred. Susan Lake, perhaps too pure, excessive goodness can often blind us to the human failings of those less perfect. <laughs> Emerson found that something as precious as love brings with it a demand for greater understanding. <laughs> Casey and Roxanne, light and shadow. Theirs was not an evil relationship, but evil did come because of it. <laughs> Otto, an end to Martin Borman. I have no idea what that means. <laughs> Harris, he forgot that yesterday is only for remembering. Those who choose to live there lose sight of tomorrow. Pet's mistake. A fleeting thing, born of emotion, yet it almost ruined the lives of two others. Randy's body, a cage for an animal, it lifted him to the top of his field. But in the end, the beast almost killed him. <laughs> and Kelly, her selfish involvement, so ready to turn her back on friendship. The road back is painful. By her pain, she will never again forget. You must each decide what your life will be. You must always know that a hand extended to your fellow man is a gesture of love. Love that asks nothing, accepts nothing, 
it is simply there. And if love is in you, then gentle be all your steps as you walk beyond this valley. Ooh. Yeah. That's that's camp. That that's camp. melodrama. Yeah. Um, and then shortly after, Kelly and Harris, Pet and Emerson, and Susan and Baxter all get married. <laughs> A triple wedding, whilst uh, Porter watches from the outside, from outside the courthouse window. And that's the end. Yeah. On a happy note. I, I guess yeah, so. Yeah, a wedding of the century. Triple wedding. Yeah. Triple weddings. Yeah. Um, I love this film. Yeah. I, I really, really enjoyed this film. Some elements were iffy, you know, but overall, thoroughly entertaining. I got what it was trying to do with the parody. I know those films mm -hmm. douglas sirk you know the the original film the the melodramas i get it you know it's the same thing that john waters did yeah. pretty much his whole career that subversiveness of of the melodrama and i loved it i really really yeah. thoroughly enjoyed it loved it thoroughly entertaining loved the music um would 100 percent fully recommend for anyone who listens to the podcast and thinks that they have a similar taste mm -hmm. to us i would fully recommend yeah yeah absolutely i mean even stuff like the costume designs the set designs it's just really it's really well made as well which adds to why it's so funny because it looks so uh it looks so slick and polished mm. uh, and everything whilst all this absurd absurdist humors going on within the film and it's so outrageously camp and over the top it's yeah. just it's a great mixture and like you said something that john waters does all the time um and yeah and this is done just as well it really is getting to the awards biggest queen i've, I've had to put biggest queens um it's, I've, it's, yeah it's a tie it's a four-way tie for me between the carrie nations all three of them and ashley saint ives yeah yeah absolutely yeah I, I would, for me personally, it was all three members of the Carry Nations, um, Absolute Queens. Um, they only get it just over Ashley St. Ives because of their performances. Yeah. We never saw Ashley perform. Wow. She tried to. She, she tried, tried to. to, bless her. God bless her, she tried to, but yeah. Biggest gasp? I've got Lance's decapitation. I really didn't see that coming. Or the 20th century uh, yeah. Fox fanfare. Um, yeah, I, I have to say I put the entire finale yeah. just out of nowhere, <laughs> just absolute ridiculousness. Uh, best dialogue, I've got, what does sex amount to without guilt? That's what Sigmund Freud says. Take away the guilt and who'd want to get laid? Ashley St. Ives. Also from Ashley St. Ives, Harris, you're drunk and stoned. And the worst of it is, you're a lousy lay. <laughs> And that's camp. I just got the entire film. There's every second of it. There's, oh, there's not a second that's not camp. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. For me, it's the Petronella, Emerson, Randy yeah. love triangle, giving pure melodrama, uh -huh. over the top, you know, being run over and falling into the fucking mm -hmm. flowers, you know, absolute camp. But the whole thing is camp. Yeah, absolutely. And for ratings, I give it 10 old fruits out of 10. I give it 10... Bad Priscilla Presley wigs out of 10. And Masterpiece Trash the Piece Trash Your Basic for the first time 
Is this the first time we've been able to do this? I don't know. I feel like it is, since Ooh. introducing the awards. It's a masterpiece. Masterpiece. It really it really is. It really is. I, I loved it. For, for the minor faults, I... Like I said at the beginning, I can't remember the last time I was so thoroughly entertained yeah. in the film. Uh, a, if, new, a new watch. Yeah. A new watch. And if you want to check it out, it's available on DVD, Blu-ray and video on demand. I mean, for Blu-ray, I don't know if both are still in print, but you've got great choices. It's either on Criterion or Arrow Video. Yeah, Criterion in America, mm -hmm. Arrow in the UK. Yeah. Um, by your by all accounts, they're quite similar. Yeah. So, which whichever one's more com more convenient for you. And if you enjoy this, I recommend checking out Female Trouble. Ah, oh, absolutely. Why didn't I put that? I was hoping you were going to put my original choice. Um, if you enjoyed this, I would recommend Faster Pussycat Kill Kill. Uh, the original Valley of the mm -hmm. Dolls. Uh, and Myra Breckenridge. Yeah, that was my original one. I was going to put definitely Myra. Also, Breckenridge. check out Written in the Wind as well, so you get a full picture of what's going on here. Yeah, I, 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 anything by Douglas Sirk, but Written in the Wind is his real masterpiece. Yeah. In in my opinion, he's got a few of them, but his top masterpiece, Written on the Wind. So, if you're a fan of Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, let us know on social media. We're Horacle Trash Over on Facebook and Instagram, and Horacle Trash on Twitter. I'm DeadAtGaz92 on Letterboxd, Gazmo205 on Instagram, and GazCruise92 on Twitter. I am ChrisBarker823 on Letterboxd and Instagram. And uh, give us a rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. Uh, like and follow on anything else. Give us a rate on Spotify. We're back on Friday. It is double episode week. And on Friday, we will be discussing and comparing both versions of the Amateurville Horror. Yay. And then... <laughs> That's a little warm-up, because next week, on Tuesday, we are kicking off our Halloween classic season. It's back again, and we're discussing Onibaba. Yes! Another choice by me, and I fucking love this film. Is this the first... Uh, um, uh, have we already discussed a Japanese film? On the podcast. I don't think we have. I don't think we no, have. And I one. think this is a perfect Halloween film. I really do. Yeah, we're, we're bookending Halloween classics with uh, Japanese films. Yeah, year. but I think this is a perfect Halloween film. And I'll tell you why next week. Perfect. Oh, that'll give people a reason <laughs> to listen. Yeah. So we'll see you on Friday. Bye. Same time, same place. I did, I did the outro wrong. Oh, no. Same time, same place on Friday. You fucked up. Bye. Bye.